pick up where we left off last week. We are working our way through a season of preparation, of confession, and of repentance. But in the process of doing these things, we're also deconstructing shame at the same time. I mentioned last week that some of the church has, whether intentionally or unintentionally, slid into an economy of shame, perhaps because it's one of the best marketing tools. In short, show people their deficiencies and then offer them the solution. But make sure that underlying the whole process is an understanding that it can't ever be fixed all the way. Or maybe it can't ever be fixed all the way in this life. Or maybe just it can't be fixed all the way until we pay off this mortgage. I hope last week set us straight that although we may have some refining to do, our fundamental identity is not as depraved people but as image bearers of the divine, as loved people, as members in the divine family, and those who were created and called good. At the beginning of this week's episode, I'd like to share my theory on how some of the church got into this shame hole. And it's actually sort of simple. Vagueness. Because on one side we have sin, which most people don't have a specific definition for. And on the other side, we have mercy and grace, which just ends up being the generic negator of this generic concept of sin. And this system of vagueness works like this. Sin is anything God doesn't like. And grace, forgiveness, mercy, and deliverance just eliminate those things. Now, strictly speaking, I don't actually have much of a problem with that formula. I can even affirm it. If you think of this whole process as a metaphorical gun, it seems true that this metaphorical gun doesn't kill people. But the bullets do. And so it matters a great deal what the bullets are, and more importantly, who is pulling the trigger and why. So let's substitute for X with a couple examples. Let's start with the understanding that sin is not good. Yes, we all agree, whatever sin means. Okay, sin is human trafficking. Got it, we're all on the same page. Sin is booze and cigarettes and heavy metal. Uh, well, wait. Sin is people not being in their country of origin. Okay, no. See, now we're getting off track. But these are all literal substitutions that people have made. So we have this vagueness of people tossing their own bullets in a gun. But we also have an even higher degree of vagueness. What happens when someone goes on and on about the sin that is ripping this world apart? The sin that is ripping you apart? All along the way, offering no specifics and inviting you to dig way down deep and find something, anything. So then we do what we always do. We look at ourselves. We look inward. We use some combination of cultural morals, personal backstory, community input, and yes, sometimes spirit. And we identify something. Sometimes good can come from that. But I think more often this process elevates what can sometimes be benign behavior to epidemic proportions. Theologically speaking, 
This is where a shame spiral begins. I certainly am concerned about what that does to an individual. But it's more than that. I'm concerned about how that distracts us from the actual issue of systemic sin. So, is all this really that vague? Or are we able to get to the bottom of what sin is and what we perhaps would be confessing in this season? I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. Postmodern liturgy exists in a couple different forms. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar the week before they actually occur. So this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow us on social media, at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram, and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, you can join our wonderful group of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. As I mentioned, we're taking the opportunity during the season of Lent to deconstruct shame. I want to mention again, I don't mean to set myself up as a mental health professional. I highly recommend connecting with one, you know, in general, but especially if any of these episodes bring something to the surface for you. With that being said, I'm learning to develop some confidence in this area. But I want to be clear, I speak to you not with a professional voice, but as one who has been through it and who is still working through it. So since we're in this season of confession and repentance, it would be great if we see if there are some specifics about what our goal actually is. Fortunately, I think it's all in the readings this week. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4a. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. made heaven and earth. Yahweh will not let your foot be moved. The one who keeps you will not slumber. The one who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. Yahweh will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and verses 13 through 17. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, 
but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. Yet, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, 
God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This week, for a couple reasons, I'd like to work backwards through the readings. The first reason is that the scriptures themselves almost directly ask us to do that. The second is, if I can jump to the end a little bit, there are a couple reasons why I think it might be possible that the reading from Genesis this week is the second most important passage in all of scripture. Now, of course, I don't rank scriptures like that, but it's super important. We'll get there. So, let's begin with the reading in the fourth gospel. The actual historicity of this story is somewhat questionable. And yes, I said it that way to avoid saying, "Eh, it seems possible this event didn't actually occur. I say this because I like to let you know this sort of stuff, but also because the message of this story is enhanced by knowing its context. The previous chapter had generically mentioned the sort of person who would place their faith in Jesus because of signs. And now, conveniently, in the very next chapter, we have such a person, Nicodemus. But more substantially, a discussion about the context of this story allows us to better see the setting of this conversation. At first glance, it would appear to be a sort of hidden camera catching an intimate interpersonal conversation situation. However, as Erdman's commentary points out, it is better understood like a public forum between two equal Jewish teachers. One of the biggest indicators of this setting is the use of the plural language at certain points. I'll come right back to that. So what's the topic of this public forum? The question at hand is, Jesus, you've done some pretty crazy stuff. How do I get in on this? Jesus says, you must be born from above. By the way, the Greek word used here can mean either again or from above. And Nicodemus misunderstands this and goes on about the impossibility of actually going through the birth process again. So Jesus tries to reiterate what he actually means. So what this public forum offers is differing views of what Jesus' signs actually mean and what precisely is meant by born again or born from above. So apparently understanding what it means to be born again is at least as important as a, some sort of conversion experience. And yes, you heard that right. I had conversion experience in sarcastic quotes. Here's what Jesus means by being born again. Becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. 
More specifically, allowing your consciousness to be reborn with the wisdom of the divine. Remember, we're in the fourth gospel, and the fourth gospel begins with Jesus being introduced as wisdom, which was a crucial concept for people of the time. Divine wisdom embodied. This isn't a momentary experience. It's an evolving understanding. But I'm not even to the crucial part yet. What was it that the serpent said the fruit of the tree in the garden would offer? Wisdom. But it is the wisdom that comes from Adam and Eve deciding they can be like God. In other words, their own wisdom. Do you see what's happening? This public forum offers Jesus the opportunity to drill down precisely to what being born from above means. And it's an opportunity to reject the choice of the human archetypes, Adam and Eve, of allowing their own sense of wisdom to dominate, and instead making people aware of the opportunity to have their values and consciousness and whole selves reborn in divine wisdom. Let's move to the passage in Romans. There's obviously a ton here to unpack, but for this week, we're actually going to skip most of it. This passage explores the tension between faith and works. Most people use the passage to have what is actually a different argument altogether. Something like, essentially, faith is belief in God and works is doing good things for people. You may have heard this argument in something like, you can't earn righteousness by being a social justice warrior. It's all about belief. And there's actually often a bro at the end of that sentence, too. Well, what if that isn't what this passage is about? And by that, I mean, I don't think that's what this passage is about. Let's consider it in light of the emerging theme this week. Most denominations would admit that faith is, at its core, a gift from God. In other words, the ability to have faith is given by God in the first place. Works, in this case, could be human striving for righteousness. In this way, this tension is simply a different way of setting the born-again debate we just talked about. Think about it this way. Faith equals divine wisdom, and works equals the fruit of the tree. With that being said, this topic deserves much more discussion in other episodes. So I'd like to move past it for now. I'd prefer to focus on the example given by Paul. As Erdman's commentary points out, Paul is essentially operating within a legal framework here. There is a precedent, an example for faith, and it's Abraham. Abraham did this thing right. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So let's look at what happened with Abraham. In one of my first classes in seminary, my professor, who I've mentioned on here before, was teaching us how to do biblical interpretation. It was a series of notes in margins and multicolored underlining, identifying questions that arose and attempting to arrive at the overall point of each passage. The passage we used in our very first example was this one from Genesis. And one of the first things our professor told us to do was to underline the so that in 12 verse 2. 
Mostly because of my professor's prompting, I realized in that moment that we spend a lot of time wondering why certain things are recommended or required in Scripture. Sometimes it takes a lot of digging. But then again, sometimes it's right there. Why is this happening? Here it is, so that blank. Many of us know that this passage is God's covenant with Abraham. As I mentioned earlier, I would place it second in my fake hierarchy of scripture passages. The first would be the creation narrative, which sets the table for the whole deal. But if the creation narrative is the introduction, this passage, God's covenant with Abraham, is the thesis statement of scripture. If I, if I put the covenant simply, it would be, I will bless you so that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And this so that statement is really good news because we now have a filter. We have reasoning. We have purpose. This entire interaction is relational. God says, I, to you, to everyone else. Now, some of this connection of God's covenant with Abraham is reversed engineered by looking ahead in Scripture to see some of the ways this chain is broken. There are examples of the I to you relationship being hindered, like the golden calf or manna in the, sa- in the time of wandering. And there are examples of the you to everyone else relationship being hindered, like you have not given the outside of your fields to those in need, or you have not taken care of the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, etc. But I'd like to stay hyper-focused on the task at hand this week. How do we provide more specificity to what we're talking about when we talk about sin? Before I go there, I'd like to be clear about something. There's an entire field of study about sin. If you're unaware, I can offer you the word so you can be snobby with it like I am. It's called homartiology, the study of sin. There are many writings on the topic, and I've only read a small portion of them. The thing I want to be clear about is that oftentimes I try to provide a well-rounded perspective on theological topics. I'm sort of breaking away from that for a moment to share my own way of operating in the world. To do that, let me start with two questions. What if we, operating within Paul's framework of transgressions, drew a line between transgression and sin. In other words, are they actually the same thing? And, what if the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden was not eating the fruit, but rather their hiding? Basically, this is the way I have committed to move forward in my own life as I deconstruct shame's influence on my self-perception. Sin is isolation. But I'd actually split that into three categories. Isolation from the divine, isolation from others or isolation from community, and isolation from oneself. I might even add a fourth, a strict division between oneself and the divine. We hide from ourselves. We hide from the divine, most often from the divine image in ourselves. And we hide from others, 
we hide from our community. In this way, sin and shame actually become equivalent. And I want to be very careful to explain what I mean so as to not contribute to shame. Shame is the thing to be avoided. It's not transgressions. Those can be effectively dealt with through confession to God, who we know to be loving and merciful, and to a community who would ideally be loving and merciful. But the problem is, as I mentioned in the intro, many church communities have actually perpetuated isolation. They're too afraid to offer examples of transgressions because it might upset someone who will leave the church. But they rail against the concept of sin anyway, which can end up conflating a tinge too much pride with something like sexual assault. So the listeners just have to pick their own poison and swallow it to keep anyone from finding out. But here's the thing. Poison actually probably won't kill you if you vomit it up right away. It certainly will if you never tell anyone you swallowed it. This is why I think a division between transgressions and sin or shame is extremely important. Churches should absolutely be troubled by sin. They should refuse to allow it. No one should ever be isolated from a broader community. Of course, there may be some exceptions in a few extreme cases. But no one should think that they are isolated from God. And no one should be tricked into dividing their self into the divine image part and the bad secret part. Churches should not tolerate sin, meaning shame. But here's the thing. If churches were serious about fixing the issue of sin, they would be incredibly welcoming of hearing transgressions. We love transgressions. We celebrate transgressions. In a healthy environment, many transgressions are easily moved on from. I transgressed. I apologize. I will walk in a new way. Or, I lied. I apologize. I will be a truth teller. And so on. Now, you may think we've drifted from the readings this week. You may be right, but I don't think so. God says, I, to you, to the whole world. This idea is so crucial that Jesus updated the process and said, I become like you so that I can exemplify a blessing to the entire world. Because of the season we're in and because of the series we're in, I think this is a great way for us to offer more specificity to the question, what exactly is sin? For me, A helpful understanding is to see it as the breaking of this system. God to you to the whole world. Isolation in either relationship breaks the system. We have experienced small hiccups through transgressions, but the best thing to do is apologize and step back into the system. The worst we can do is to feel unworthy of the system and isolate further. Healthy communities will invite you back into the system with open arms, no matter what you say or how many times you say it. Unhealthy communities will be sure to keep you at an arm's length. Leave the former ones. You weren't part of them anyway.
For our prayer this week, I have a bit of a combo prayer. It's a prayer of confession that is first rooted, literally, as you will see, in an imaginative prayer. As we begin, stand with both feet firmly planted in the ground. I'd recommend if this were done outside, but it isn't necessary. Focus your attention on your feet firmly planted on the ground. Now, as we know, it is from dust we came. Imagine a vine growing out of the ground. This vine represents life, and it represents intertwinement with the Creator. Feel the vine wrap itself around the bones in your foot. Pay attention as the vine crawls up the bones in your leg. Follow the vine as it crawls up your body, wrapping itself around somewhere where you keep yourself or where you keep your soul, and all the way up to your head. Now watch as the vine comes back down and through your arms. As you extend your arms out, imagine the people around you. Imagine the vine extending out from your body to your community. Out of your right hand, the vine extends to your friends, to your family, to those you love. And out of your left hand, the vine extends to those you don't consider friends. To those you don't know. To those you don't consider to be like you. To your enemies. Take a moment to observe who is connected. As we pray, remain connected. Loving Creator, we know that we are accepted and belong, and we confess. We confess the transgressions that attempt to draw us out of this connectivity. We confess the times we have isolated ourselves by choosing to cut the vine. We confess that sometimes we become distracted by benign behavior and overlooks abusive systems such as racism, sexism, economic injustice, connection to all created things, and others. 
We confess that we have cut the vine in our left hand. We confess that we have cut the vine in our right hand. We confess that we have cut the vine at our feet. But we gladly allow you to return and grow through us again. That does it for this week's episode. I'd love if you would join us online. We are at postmodernliturgy.com. We are at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. Finally, I'd love it if you would consider supporting our work for free by sharing or rating and reviewing the podcast or financially at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. If you visit our Patreon site, you can see several great benefits for our supporters. Thanks again for joining me, and enjoy the tension.